Hello, everyone. Welcome to Women in the Word. It's great to be with you today. My name is Amy Foster. I always love being here with all of you, so thanks for joining us. We are right about in the middle of our study of 2 Samuel, and we're looking at the life of David, the king of God's choosing. And you know, so often we hear things about David, and he seems like this mythical, sort of spiritual superhero kind of guy. And then we get into these chapters, and we realize, oh, he's human. He's a flawed man, just like all of us. Um, We realize he experiences the consequences for being human. That's really what we're seeing in chapter 18 today. We're going to get a view of consequences and a view of David's human heart. And he struggles with so many of the things we struggle with. I can really sympathize with him in this chapter, in this struggle. He is a conflicted man, quite clearly, conflicted over probably love and optimistic hope for his son And then he is also considering God's plan for the nation and specifically David's own responsibility to the nation as king. And I think I can relate to this because I'm a parent, but honestly, we can all relate to this because at some point or another, we all had a parent, didn't we? We understand things about the parent-child relationship. As I was preparing, I was reminded of an incident with my boys years ago, um, It was the week before Christmas, and I was working in my office at the church. About mid-morning, I get a call from my youngest son, and he is whispering on the phone, but I can hear the alarm in his voice. And all he said was, Mom, are there supposed to be men downstairs? There are men down there whispering and moving things around. Okay, before we go any further, um, no children are harmed in this story. This story ends well. You're going to laugh at the end of it, so relax just a little bit. But the answer to the question was no. There are not supposed to be men in the house right now. All reason and logic left my body and my brain in that moment. I started running towards my car. I'm speeding home while I'm clicking back and forth between a 911 operator and my young son. Now, I know that all reason and logic left me because it's a 20-minute drive to my house. And come on, look at me. I mean, all five feet and middle-aged me is racing to the scene of the crime. What am I going to do with these intruders who are in my home? But I wasn't thinking those things. All I was thinking in that moment was my sons are in danger. When I'd left the house that morning, three boys were asleep upstairs enjoying a Christmas vacation, and now it seemed they were in danger. So about halfway home, the 911 operator asked me a question, and I realized, oh, we have a different view of what's happening in my house right now. I've been talking about my sons who are home alone, and she asked me, what are the ages of the children in the house? And I had to say, well, the children in the house are 14 and 17 and 20. (laughs) Don't you know her eyes were rolling? Don't you know she wanted to say, ma'am, those are strong young men. They're not children. And if she'd said that, I would have answered to her, they're my children. Right? We get that. They were my children in the house. Well, all is well. A few minutes later, another phone call comes in, and it's all sorted out, those Intruders downstairs were not intruders. They were more like Santa's elves. My husband was planning a Christmas surprise. He had actually left a key for the intruders under the mat, and they were there to install a big flat-screen TV in the living room so that the boys and my son could watch sporting events um, on the big screen. 
So all was well. I turned the car around. I'm driving home. A few minutes later, I catch my reflection in the glass, and my whole body was shaking. These curls were just bouncing and vibrating. Um, My body could not settle down. Because even though those young men in the house, they are strong, competent, capable, young adult men, for me, they are always my children. You get it, don't you? We are always going to respond to our children when, when they are in danger. I think David is trying to process that the enemy, the rebel leader, is also his child. And I can totally understand how difficult that would be for David. David's earlier sin with Bathsheba, we read all about that, and we know that he confessed that sin to God and God forgave it. But God also made it very clear that there would be consequences for that sinful action. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 12 on your verse sheet. And thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And that's exactly what we're seeing in this chapter. David is experiencing this son from his own house who is plotting evil against David. We already know where we are in the story. We've seen Absalom, who is now a grown man. He's blown the trumpet. He's announced himself as the king of Israel. He's raised up supporters. Anywhere from twelve to 20,000 supporters are rallied behind him. He caused David and his entourage to actually flee the palace in Jerusalem. And Absalom strode into the capital and the palace, and he made himself at home in the king's palace, and he took advantage of the king's concubines. And now these two armies, Absalom's army and David's army, They're faced off, prepared for a huge military conflict. Begin reading with me in chapter 18. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they won't care about us. If half of us die, they won't care about us, but you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands, and the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai. Deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to the commanders about Absalom. Okay, so we know David's the king, but what's implied in that, he is also the military commander for all of Israel. So that's what he's doing here. He's organizing his army before they go out. We see that he divides them into three groups under these three experienced leaders. And David does plan to go into the battle himself But the men remind him what we've already read a few chapters back. Absalom and his army, they have one goal, and the goal is kill David. Get the man off the throne so Absalom can be on the throne. So very wisely and very humbly, I think, David submits to their recommendation, and he agrees he's not going to put the whole nation at risk by going out there with a giant target on his back. David will remain at the city of Mahanaim while the army fights this battle to protect David's throne. 
Now, I don't know if you noticed this as you were reading through this chapter, but the writer does something really interesting with his word choice here. Um, In these first few verses, a couple of times David is referred to by his name, David. But quite a few times he's referred to simply by his title, the king. And right here in verse 5, the writer is going to stop using David's name to refer to him. And he will only refer to David as the king. And actually, in the whole chapter, David is referred to by his name three times. He's referred to by his title, the king, 27 times. And so I think that's an important literary device. I think the writer is showing us we've got David the father and we've got David the king, and they are in conflict. Those roles are conflicting one another right now. It's very easy for me to just imagine this scene, so I'd encourage you to imagine it as well. Mahanaim is a walled, ancient city with a big fortress-like wall around it. The city gates would be open during the daytime. That's the place where important business would be done. It would be a gathering place. And David is positioned there making all of these battle plans. And as the 2,000 of his men are gathered, imagine they have their swords strapped to their sides They've said goodbye to their friends and family members. They are ready to risk life and limb to protect David. And as they all line up and march past him at the king's gate, the king is giving a command and encouragement. This is his moment to speak to his troops. And David doesn't say, go mighty warriors, fight for Israel, fight for God. That's what we would expect him to say as the king, but instead he says, deal deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. Not Absalom the rebel, Absalom the enemy, but the young man. And the writer lets us know everyone heard it. The commanders heard it and all the army. They heard the king's instruction. Well, much has been written about this. Was this weakness on David's part? Was it selfishness? Perhaps it was just foolishness. I can clearly see a man in conflict here. Is he a protective father, or is he the one tasked to protect the nation of Israel? He's both. He was still the king of God's choosing. He was not so old and infirmed that he was unable to ride out into battle, and he was not so old and infirmed that it was time for him to hand over the kingship. And even if he were, it wasn't going to go to Absalom. That was not God's plan. I want us to talk for just a minute about who would succeed David on the throne. You know, most of us have read further in the Old Testament history, and we know who the next king is. We know it's Solomon. But all through this, I kept wondering, does David know? Does Absalom know? Do they know all along that this is contrary to God's plan? We know that the cultural tradition was that the king's eldest son would succeed him on the throne. Well, the eldest son was Amnon, the one that Absalom has already murdered. And at this point, it it looks as if Absalom is next in line for the throne culturally. But we know that Solomon was God's plan. Solomon's birth actually gives us a clue when we consider, does David know Solomon is going to be the one on the throne? We read this a few weeks ago, and it's so brief, and it's so quick. Uh, I think we were inclined to miss some important things. But 2 Samuel 12, verse 24, it says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went in to her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved Solomon and sent a messenger by Nathan 
excuse me, sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. It's just a few short lines here, but they're packed with meaning and they're pretty significant. Significant that Solomon's birth is described right here in the very next chapter shows us Amnon and Tamar and Absalom, and we haven't had a reference to their birth. Solomon's birth is significant among all of the sons born to David. And that's what we see in that tiny little verse right now. First, we notice that the prophet Nathan, remember the role of the prophet was to be God's messenger, speak God's words. Nathan is sent to give a message at the time that Solomon is born. We don't see that happening with any other sons. And the message is this, the Lord loved Solomon. Now we're thinking, well, yeah, everybody loves every baby. No, this idea of the message, the Lord loves Solomon, it suggests some kind of special designation on Solomon's life. It's very similar to when Moses was a baby, and it was said of Moses, he was a beautiful child. There was a special designation by God on the life of Moses, and it appears that's what that means here, that God loved Solomon. Then it also says the Lord gives Solomon a name, and this name, Jedidiah, means beloved of the Lord. So we get some idea that there's an indication early on Solomon is going to be the next king. Um, if you want to do a deep dive, you can go look. There's a couple places in First Chronicles when we see conversations between David and Solomon, and David tells Solomon, Nathan told me I wasn't going to build the temple, you are. Then you, there's a conversation with David and Bathsheba when she says, now you know you promised me Solomon would be on the throne. So we can't know for sure, but I think we have a great reason to believe David and Nathan and Bathsheba, they know Absalom is never going to be on the throne. They know Solomon is God's choice. So what, what everything Absalom is doing here is creating this great conflict, trying to make himself Israel's king. Now let's read about the battle beginning in verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head was caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. All right, let's remember the last couple of weeks. Um, in the last few chapters, we saw David's undercover network really helping him. Um, and they were helping him buy a little extra time, get all the way across the Jordan to get to this location. The location actually gives David a very strategic advantage. They're east of the Jordan River, just north of this city, Mahanaim. And this is an advantage because the land here in the forest, we know it was very wooded and thick, full of thickets. The ground was uneven. It had some deep pits. It had some rocky, um, steep rises. The land here is very similar to the land where David and his mighty men fought and lived successfully for a very long time. They know how to fight and how to live and how to survive on this kind of land. It's a huge advantage to them. David's men are vastly outnumbered. We see that. But remember, they created three divisions. And so when it tells us that the battle was fought all across the land, we get this idea that they, they divided up their divisions basically like they had three fronts. 
And so even though they were outnumbered, they had divided up the opposing army. So they couldn't bring all their force into one location. And they were very successful. But it's interesting that rough terrain, the forest, and the land was even more successful than the fighting men. Um, the rough terrain and the forest actually kills the majority of Absalom's men that day. So when we read those words, we have to stop and recognize this is part of the providential rule of God working in Israel's history right now. The providential rule of God is the idea that God created everything that is here for a purpose, and he didn't create it and turn and walk away. He created it, and all the power that went into creating that power keeps working in this world. God is moving the events of the world to God's appointed end. And we see that that's what he's doing here. God's the one who put David on the throne. God's the one who's going to keep David on the throne. God created that forest, and he will use that forest to accomplish his purposes. So we learn that somehow this forested terrain, it captures Absalom, His head is caught in the thicket of the trees, the mighty oak. And boy, there is a ton of speculation about what that means, isn't there? You know, we got those those verses a few weeks back about Absalom's fabulous hair and how he had to cut it off every year because it was so thick and lustrous and wonderful. So we like to think, oh, I bet his hair was his downfall. Don't don't we want to think that about him? Maybe it was. That's a possibility. Other people have suggested There just was a branch that caught him right under the chin. We're not sure, but we know that the forest has Absalom, and he's hanging there very vulnerably. Um, We also know that his mule went on without him. A mule was a symbol of royalty. Some have speculated that that was actually David's mule that he had taken from the stables in Jerusalem. It just gives us this great imagery of all of Absalom's royal dreams abandoning him here, you know, walking away as he's suspended. This battle is a big national conflict over the throne, but this is the point where we really start to see everybody involved has their own internal conflict going on in their hearts. Joab is a man with some internal conflicts here. In case you've forgotten, Joab is one of the military commanders. That means he works for the king, Joab has his job because the king has given it to him. Joab is supposed to follow the king's order. And the king's order was deal gently with Absalom. So now that Absalom is stuck here hanging in the trees, let's see how Joab deals gently with him. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand, and he thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded him and struck him and killed him. All right, Joab is just a great mystery, isn't he? It's really hard to understand his motivation, his commitment. Um, 
we do see pretty consistently he's, he's bloodthirsty, he's cunning, he's ruthless. We see he's a little bit unfaithful. He can change allegiance sometimes too. Um, I also see that Joab was not just a mystery to us. He was a mystery to his own men. Um, what this text suggests is that Joab had already offered a reward of silver and a belt to anyone who would kill Absalom. Joab most likely had a premeditated plan to kill Absalom, which means a premeditated plan to defy his king and to not follow David's orders. So the man who is reporting Absalom's positions here, he knows Joab is my leader, but he can't be trusted. He's not going to stand with me. Um, If Joab was willing to defy the king, the men couldn't expect him to be faithful to them either. I thought it was interesting that he makes that accusation to Joab, and Joab doesn't defend himself, and he doesn't argue back. He says, I don't have time for that. We don't have time for that. He takes his javelins, and he goes, and he puts them in Absalom's heart. Ten of his armor bearers join him. Um, With 11 people involved in this attack, it might be hard to identify who exactly was responsible. If anyone should be punished, who would it be? I don't think it really matters. Um, who was responsible for killing Absalom, because what we know is Absalom's death is part of God's providential rule. And God spoke of this in chapter 17. It said, The Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. This is all God's providential rule. It took David, the target, out of the middle of the battle, and it brought Absalom right there where those trees were going to catch him. We have to remember that this is God at work here, and we're seeing God's justice being enacted on Absalom. That's really hard for us, um, but let's remember Israel lived under the Mosaic Covenant at that time. That means there were 600 laws that they were bound to obey and to follow, and there were penalties when they violated those laws. A law that decreed dishonoring your father was a crime punishable by death. We know Absalom had violated that. There was a law that said murdering, murdering your brother, was a crime punishable by death. There was a law that said sexual relations with your father's wife was a law, don't cross that, punishable by death. Now, I know David's concubines weren't technically his wives, so that's a little hard to know how to interpret that. But we do know this. They were women that were not Absalom's wives. So there's another kind of sin that God calls that. Also, that is punishable by death. When we see Absalom's death here, we just have to know this is God's justice. Absalom has been cursed by God. He's been judged by God. And we have to remember that the curse of God lands on people who have chosen cursed behavior. This isn't just arbitrary God coming down and hitting a random person with a lightning bolt. Absalom has chosen cursed behavior all of his life repeatedly, and now in this moment, God gives him over to that cursed position. That's God's justice, and we have to be sobered by that, ladies, and remember God's justice still plays out today. We're not held to those 600 laws, but those who reject Jesus as the perfect sacrifice, whose blood covers our sins, whose resurrection brings us forgiveness, those who choose to reject that will one day be given the same cursed position, separated from God forever. God's justice is on display here. God is working, 
and he was going to work regardless of what Joab did. He didn't need Joab's help here. Joab had some choices to make. Joab could obey the king's command and trust God to work, trust God to accomplish his own will, or Joab could compromise and do the rebellious, defiant thing in order to get the outcome he wanted on the time frame he wanted. Opinions are split on this, but I just am going to give you mine. I think Joab was rebellious and defiant to the king by killing Absalom. I think it was wrong. I think it was a sin. But I can also look at Joab and understand that conflict in his heart. How often do I struggle to trust God when things aren't going the way I think they should go and when the victory isn't happening on the time frame that I would prefer? How tempting is it to compromise, to lie, to manipulate, to control, to tell a little untruth, to bend a rule, maybe to betray someone and not be that faithful, to do anything to get the circumstances to move the way I want? I know that conflict. We always have two choices. When conflicted by these kind of events, we have the choice of we can sin and control and manipulate, or we can trust that God is working, and he will get things where he wants them. We're trusting the providential rule of God. We've actually just seen here that God used the forest to accomplish his plans. We can trust that God will use our circumstances to accomplish his plans. Rather than acting wrongly, we can wait on God and trust him. Psalm 40, verse 4 says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Absalom has been killed now by Joab, but we know it's the curse of God on him, and he's buried in a very dishonorable way. We're told they just cover him with a great heap of stones, and this is actually quite appropriate for someone who three times violated a law where the penalty was death by stoning. So Absalom is actually receiving the penalty that he deserved here. Absalom had erected his own monument toward his greatness. I think that was how he wanted to be remembered. But instead, he gets this um, less than uh, glowing reminder of his uh, life here in his death. He's buried in a place that isn't a celebrated place. He's not buried with the king's family in Israel He's buried out here in this land associated with Canaanite kings. All right, the story gets really interesting here because we've got two runners um, designated to run back to Mahanaim and give David the message. One really wants to deliver it. The other one is just doing his job. But what we see here, both of these runners, they got a little conflict going on inside them too. They both want to share the good news of the victory, but nobody wants to share the news about Absalom. So as they run, one gets there first. Um, I, I want to stop that story and point something out that happens in verse 24, though. Um, in verse 24, the author uses this literary device, and we're not referring to the king right here. We're referring to the father, David. Verse 24, now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. We get a picture of a father waiting for news of his son, not a king waiting for news of his country. That's what we're under to understand by the name David there. He's sitting between the gates. 
The messengers arrive. They both give basically the same message, good news, shalom, peace. God has delivered you from your enemy. They both get the same question, what about Absalom? The first messenger tells a lie and says he doesn't know. The second messenger is very tactful and cautious and calculated in his language, but he does gently explain the truth that Absalom is dead. Let's look at David's response in verse 33. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And as he wept, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And it was told to Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. So David's grief here is public and it's loud and it's long. This goes over a long period of time. It continues as the message is carried all the way back to the troops and Joab and as Joab travels and comes back here into the city. And when the messenger is spotted from afar, we see David taking his position there at the gate, waiting for the news, and they're waiting. And you have to assume that all the people in the city see this and recognize it as a sign, and they probably come out too, and they're all waiting there to find out how the battle went. And the news is good for God, and it's good for Israel, and it's good for the throne But the king does the most surprising thing. He launches into public lament and mourning for his son. And he actually expresses his preference that it would be better if he had died and his army had lost. The witnesses surely are shocked that this isn't a celebratory, victorious response. The king speaks only words of grief for his son, no words of thanks to God, no words of gratitude to the warriors, No words of hope that the plan of God is succeeding in Israel, only words for the rebel son. Much of this happened very publicly down here by the gate, but there's a room up above the gate, and when David goes up there, all the people can still hear his grief. He's wailing, and he's crying, and he's grieving, and it's observable to all the people. Israel's tradition was that military men would return home after victory in a parade-like fashion. There would be singing and dancing and rejoicing and instruments. So we can just imagine these rejoicing, victorious warriors traveling through the countryside. They're going back to Mahanaim. They are expecting to be welcomed as victors. They're expecting to pass before their king in honor until this message gets to them. The king is not celebrating. The king is grieving his son. The king wishes he were dead and you were defeated. And I don't know, in my mind, that celebratory crowd is traveling along and it looks like a big balloon and this news gets to them and it just pops that balloon and all the joy comes out of the group that's traveling, the big mass there. Their victory turns into mourning. Pride turns into shame. And the heroes actually slink back in town, confused and ashamed, as if they'd lost the battle. 
Now, we understand it. David's grief is human. It's completely understandable. It's also culturally somewhat appropriate. Strong, audible public grief was the norm in Israel at this time. And it is expected that a father would mourn for a son. But David is not just a father. David is also the king that is supposed to be leading the nation of Israel here. I don't believe for a moment that God would expect a father to be unfeeling about the loss of a son. But I do think when the desires of that rebellious son work against the declared plans of God, that David the father must choose the plan and role that God has given him. David must choose to be king and not support a rebellious son who works against that. He's in this relational conflict, and he must prioritize the plans of God. We have to do the same thing, don't we, with people in our lives that we love and we care about when friendship relationships lead us away from God's will or maybe business relationships cause us to compromise and go away from God's will or romantic relationships. We have to prioritize the will of God. And I want you to hear me. That doesn't mean we have to stop loving those people. It just means we have to love the will of God more, and we have to choose that first. And that's what we don't actually see David doing here. One more conflict I see in David. I see he's got this conflict um, created by his overwhelming emotions. Definitely the loss of a son is a powerful emotional experience. And definitely David is an emotional guy, isn't he? I mean, that's just how he's made. I actually think this is David's greatest strength is his great emotional capacity. And when that emotional capacity is in line with the will of God, David's heart expands and he does great things. But when that emotional capacity is not in line with God, David's heart shrinks and he makes a lot of mistakes and he makes a lot of errors. There's no sin in a father's grief for a son, but what we see here is David is undisciplined with his emotions and he lets his emotions completely overwhelm him He weeps and he cries, but he does not pray and he does not remember God in this experience. You know, we talked about this last week. David is the one who wrote so many of the Psalms of lament. These are beautiful Psalms and they always follow the same pattern. In lament, big, bold emotions are fully felt and expressed. Nothing is held back. There's no denial or repression In lament, the psalmist will say, I'm in the pit. This is the pit of despair, the pit of sadness, the pit of anguish. But then the psalmist will move from the pit to prayer. That is the discipline of lament. There's a point of turning from the overwhelming emotion and turning toward God. And in that turning, you're opening yourself to the presence of God. And we know the presence of God is comforting and healing, and compassionate, um, and peaceful. This is a disciplined response to life's hard emotions. It's lament, but David doesn't do it. And when he doesn't do it, his emotions become reckless, and they have very dangerous consequences. You know, Proverbs 29, 11 says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. In this very human moment, David has dropped his disciplined approach to handling his emotions with God, and it doesn't go well for him. 
And I can relate to that, can't you? Can't, have you ever been overwhelmed by your emotions and you didn't remember to turn towards God? Those emotions can be consuming and they take us down a dangerous path. They, ha- they cause us to believe God's presence has left us. His presence hasn't left. Our awareness of his presence is what's missing here. So we can choose the disciplined response of turning towards God when these emotions are overwhelming. We turn to God when we stop and remember his goodness in the past. We turn to God when we recall his promises. And when we can't remember his promises, then we go to these words and we read them. We turn to God in prayer. And ladies, if you can't pray, you open these psalms and you pray the psalms that are already written for you. And if you can't do anything else, anything on your own to remember the Lord, you draw near the people of God your spiritual friends, and you let them help you remember the Lord. We are called to be people of remembrance. The choice is unrestrained venting of emotions or the disciplined response of turning to God in the emotion. David makes the poor choice here. Things are a bit of a mess in Israel in spite of their victory. And an uh, unexpected person comes in. Joab is going to be the fixer of David's mess. I think he's kind of like a spin doctor here. He's telling them, here's what the polls say, David, and it doesn't look good for you. He's actually an unexpected agent of God's work. Let's read Joab's conversation here in verse 5, chapter 19. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and he took his seat in the gate and the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. As I imagine that little room above the gate in this moment, that room has a shower and Joab turns the cold water on and he shoves David in it. That's really what's happening here. He's he's waking David up. David's in danger of losing the support of all of Israel. He'll be a king, but he will not really have a kingdom, and that is a risky thing. Joab says it will be worse than all the terrible things that you've experienced. One of the things we just have to love about David is he's humble and he's teachable. He wakes up and he listens to what Joab says. And in my imaginary playing out of this, He gets out of that cold shower and he washes his face and he fixes his hair. He turns his emotions towards God. He puts on the kingly robe. He accepts the role God has for him. And he goes and he sits down in the gate as the king. And he invites the people to come before him. Conflicts resolved. But what we see here, humans don't always get these conflicts right. We're just like David. And I love it that if we keep reading in this book and we get to the New Testament, we get a picture of the one who always gets it right. We get Jesus, the perfect king, born through the line of David here. 
Jesus always demonstrates the right way to handle these conflicts. And aren't you so comforted to know Jesus knew these conflicts? Every conflict we saw in this story is something Jesus experienced. I was reminded that during Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, he was tempted profoundly to get his needs met in an expedient way, and his temptation was great. It came directly from Satan. Jesus deserved all the things that Satan was offering, provision and glory and power, but Jesus won't compromise and take those things in a way that's out of step with God's plan or God's timing. Instead, he trusts himself to God. When conflicted, Jesus had to choose to trust the rule of God. And I think we get that as an example for us. We also know Jesus experienced these interpersonal conflicts when the people he cared about wanted things contrary to the plan of God. Actually, the people he cared about the most wanted things contrary to the plan of God. Mark 3 gives us this beautiful story. Jesus is in the middle of his time of public ministry, exactly where God wanted him to be, and he's preaching to a crowd, and he gets a message that his mother and his brothers are there. They think he's mentally ill. They don't recognize his deity yet, and they're trying to take him out of that public role. And Jesus refuses them in that moment. He chooses to prioritize the work of God and the role that God has for him over the meeting the desires of those family members. And I love it. I don't think for one moment Jesus' love for those people is diminished. It's simply his commitment to the priorities of God are elevated over his love for those people. And then what about these overwhelming emotions? Jesus had the same conflict of overwhelming emotions in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was considering the suffering that he would endure on the cross, and he described those emotions as sorrowful to the point of death. Those emotions were so strong and powerful, his body responded by sweating drops of blood. Jesus doesn't repress or deny those emotions. He stays up all night processing those emotions and turning to God in prayer. He shares them with God, and he entrusts himself to God's will. Jesus gives us the example that we are to follow. God is working out his plan for the world. He's working out his plan for the nation of Israel through David, and then he's working out his plan for the whole world through the king who would come, Jesus, the perfect king from the tribe of Judah. And we know Jesus will overcome every eternal conflict for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness towards us. Um, We thank you that you haven't left us here to figure things out on our own, but you are working in the world that we live in, and you are working in the details of our lives. We thank you that um, we are as flawed as David and Joab and everyone else in this picture, and yet your mercy and your love for us continues and is great. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to choose you over all the conflicts we experience. We love you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.